Hello, welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wozencroft. Today, Messi and Ronaldo failed to make it to the last 16 of the Champions League. Is it the long goodbye? At Manchester United have a football director... What direction does that take a club in, though? We'll tell you all about vertical football and mark 20 years of Daniel Levy as Tottenham's chairman. To help me through it all, Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark, and Jonathan Northcroft. I've dispensed with the niceties as no one ever says hello to me. So let's just get straight oh, into it. Uh, Juventus, no, 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 I'm not doing it. I've been publicly embarrassed too much. No, I've had enough. I've had enough. You know, I, oh. I, I'm tired of being greeted by a wall of silence. So let's start with our first topic. <laughs> I approve. I approve. Juventus being knocked out in dramatic fashion against Porto. It was a great tie in the European Cup. I think Cristiano Ronaldo, frankly, deserved it after turning his back in the wall for that Porto free kick. Uh, meanwhile, Lionel Messi's Barcelona nightmare could soon be over with a, a chance to leave the club on a free transfer this summer. Ronaldo, by the way, will have a year left on his deal this summer as well. So decisions for both of them to make. Ronaldo, of course, has won six Champions League titles. Messi has won four. Jonathan, the real question I want to ask is, do you think they will ever win one again? <laughs> I don't think they will, actually. Um, uh, even at free, even as free transfers, which they're likely to be um, in the summer, I, the financials of signing either of them are crazy. And I think Messi missed the moment of going to Manchester City. I don't see any of the really top clubs that are geared up um, for winning the Champions League. Maybe PSG, but I, I don't know. Um, signing him, and I think Ronaldo's days at, at the really top clubs are over. And I, I think you can still see greatness in both players, particularly Messi. Um, maybe Ronaldo's just refined his game into poaching, basically. But... Neither of them can hit the heights again without being part of convincing, um, you know, decent, well-set-up units. Neither Barcelona or Juventus are that at the moment. They both look like teams that are going to need a lot of sorting out. So even if they stayed, I don't think that either of those teams are going to be um, real top contenders for a while. I just can't see them moving anywhere that's going to showcase their talents to the to the best. I, I think we might just see a sort of Bit of a, a slow decline, well, that's what we've already seen, but more of the same, where we, we get moments, we still get goals. The stats are probably still pretty good because they're going to score a lot of goals, um, but it's just a little bit of an after party. And, you know, this whole passing of the baton thing is a bit tedious, but I do think we're, we're starting to enter a different era. Um, no one will come close to them. In terms of body of work, they'll still do amazing things, but I think their days as the ruling the roost and nobody coming close is probably gone. Tom, the powers of the clubs that they play for waning at the moment, but what, do you think their individual powers have dropped off as well? I don't know whether their individual powers have dropped off because I think when you're as good as they are with the career that they've had, they will, you know, they're now at the point where they carry the kind of allure and the um, fear factor almost by just by being on the pitch, if you like. But um, I mean, it's only natural that We've talked before, particularly about Messi. They've both had to adapt their games, let's be honest, from both being kind of skillful, pacey, unpredictable, wide players cutting in off the wing to then both in more recent years being in different ways central forwards, if you like. Messi in a number 10 where he kind of just only only runs when they're attacking um, and Ronaldo almost as a number nine getting in the box. I think a lot of his goals have scored getting on the end of crosses in almost a traditional centre-forwards way. So I, 
if anything, I think that's to be admired. I always admire when any athlete or any footballer can adapt their game in order to continue to play at the very top. But it is just, as you hint at, it is just a sign that no matter how great you are, you're only as good as the team you're in ultimately, particularly when it comes to top-level competition. We talked, Messi's been in one team that have evolved around him and you know haven't bought that wisely in recent years and therefore have dropped off. Ronaldo has moved from Manchester United. That was the best Manchester United team of the last 20 years. You could easily say the team that he was in for the years of um, prominence. Then he moved to Real Madrid. Fantastic team. You know, we've got, he's got players around him all the time working for him to be great. I'm not taking anything away from him. And But, you know, then he moved to Juventus probably for one final swan song. And they, as you say, have tailed off question marks remain about their manager um, so I I think it's unfair to say that they have dipped away I actually think there's something to be admired in the way that they've adapted their game in recent years it's just only so much you can do in the teams that they're in at the moment Gregor one year left on Ronaldo's contract Messi's going to be on a free if, if they do desperately want that final Champions League title do they have to move this summer? Um, I think I think we'll, I think the likelihood of Messi moving this summer is is quite high now. I think you know that relationship seems to have, seems to have fractured a little bit. I don't know there's a new president's been elected. Um, the the thing is, who's going to afford them? Let's be honest about it. You know, they're both earning when bonuses are uh, taken into account. We're talking like a hundred million quid a year, something like that. So, who who's going to pay that in this current climate uh, for someone who is in the mid thirties? No matter how big an icon they are, as Johnny said, PSG probably the only club that might consider it. And City, I'm not even sure. So, yeah, yeah, I don't think these clubs are likely to win to win a Champions League. So, if, yeah, if, they, if that's something they desperately want, and um, that's that's something that they would have to look 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 to do. But I think I think on the the issue of their kind of fading, they they are fading. Everyone, even the best players that have ever lived, slow with age. <laughs> it's a sad fact of life, which I know all too well. I faded in my late 20s, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but the, the, uh, the, that's also coupled with the kind of prevailing dynamic of football these days, which is like the German school of pressing. And so there's no room for, for any kind of player who's, no matter how talented they are, who can't fit into a system. That's the, the best teams play that way now. And so I think that is also, you look at Barcelona and, and, and Juventus are a, a man down when it comes to winning the ball back up high up the pitch. That's the fact of the matter. So they're almost like a weight round their, their, their necks now, these two players. Not just financially, but in apart from the, the moments of sheer brilliance like we saw Messi's goal the, uh, the other night. Aside from those moments, they are a man down out, out of possession and you can't do that anymore. I could see Ronaldo maybe going to somewhere like LA, sitting. Man United. No, no. I, I see him. You Blow know, the that, budget. Hugh. One last, one last hurrah. To be honest, I would, I, I would like to see it, but I, I, we'll talk about Manchester United recruitment a little bit later on. I don't think they've got it in them, to be frank. But I, I could see Ronaldo going somewhere like. LA sitting courtside watching LeBron James and the Lakers, you know, getting that allure, doing the the late night shows, you know, that circuit, 
building his brand even bigger than it already is. I could see that as being attractive to Ronaldo. Someone like Messi, I think he could end up at Manchester City because they want to build their brand as well. I, I, I think that could happen. Maybe not the big salary from City, maybe something like equity in the City football group. Who knows? Open your own club in Argentina and they'll expand their number of teams as well long term. So I think there is a decision for Messi to make, but I think Ronaldo will take that shot at the US. I just, I can feel it in my bones. Tom, what do you think? I just think it's an interesting point you make about that being the other option, if you like. And for these two greats of the game, you know, they are they are literally some of the greatest players that have ever played. It's, it's strange to me how the ends of their career are often viewed. Because unless you do, say, an Eric Cantona and win a title and then just go, oh, by the way, lads, I'm retiring. It's, it's either you keep fighting at the very, very top and then have these questions about, oh, the fading genius, the passing of the torch, the end of an era. Oh, it's a bit sad. Or you then go, right, add enough for the add enough for the very top. I'm off to LA. I'm off to the MLS to, you know, take that game to another level. And then you're said, oh, they're taking the money, et cetera, et cetera. It's, I, I almost, this sounds stupid to say I feel sorry for a footballer who's earned millions and millions of pounds and lived the amazing life. But they have worked their absolute ass off to get here. And the end of their career is kind of viewed in either one of these two, uh, through one of these two spectrums. And both of them end up having slightly negative connotations with them. And I just think they should, as I said before, they should be admired if they, if they, if they choose to shun the money route and go for another, another crack at the very top, they should be admired for that. I agree with Tom that these guys have achieved so much that they, they deserve admiration and not to be judged with what they, they do in the rest of their career. Um, I, I suspect they both become too addicted to, to the wages and the money to, to do something when money's not the sort of central factor. But the end of this last phase of their careers could still be spectacular. I think the, the template is probably Zlatan, who, you know, at 35, which is the age Ronaldo is now, then had his chapter when he went to Manchester United. After that came Galaxy and and, and he fit, you know, his self-confidence and Bragadicio fitted into America in a way that Ronaldo's probably would. Um, and and he's still doing stuff at Milan. It's just not at top, top of, of, of a career. It's not that, that dominance that we've seen from Ronaldo and Messi. I could see them creating thrills and, and doing a bit of a Zlatan, um, but I couldn't see them you know, running the show in the way that they've they've done and, and whatever they do, they 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 deserve the right to choose the end of their career without us judging them. I just I, I do suspect money will be at the heart of the next few years for them. I know we, we, we kind of discussed the, the passing of the baton a couple of weeks ago, but can we just briefly reflect on that mad seven minutes of football involving Haaland last night. That was like the most crazy seven minutes of football I think I've ever witnessed with Haaland just kind of bundling his way through people again. And it looked like he'd miscontrolled it, hit his knee and he somehow found a way into the goal. And then <laughs> and then having a, having a Barney with the goalkeeper twice with the penalties. I mean, you know, we're talking about these guys are fading, but yeah, as we said a few weeks ago, what he's doing in the Champions League, he's just making a mockery of it. It's a joke. And, and we've got Mbappe, so look, the future's bright anyway. 14 games to get to 20 goals in the Champions League. But it was still another one of those VAR examples that shows we need to evolve as well, because, you know, you can't score a goal and then it be chalked off so that you can be awarded a penalty. I mean, at least have the NFL system where you can sort of decline, you know, if some something's 
gone in your favour, you can say, no, nah, it's all right, ref, we'll, we'll take the goal. You know? Were they not ruling it was a foul, though, in, in the goal? So that's why they went back. I oh, I see. There. So they did actually call Cause he, cause as I his, say, he's his a, bundle he's a into the defender ram. as a foul. Yeah, that wasn't a foul. But, you know, I, th- I thought that's maybe what happened. And then and then they went back to the I penalty. See. And then they, and then it was inter- it's interesting, his interview afterwards, where the, the goalkeeper had got up in his face beforehand. Uh and so he's he's not shy, is he? That guy, he's not shy. Great value, though. You say great value. I don't know how much he's going to cost. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, true. Whoever does eventually buy him, it might not be the exact value, but I think you're going to get goals and you're going to get a lot of entertainment if you do buy him, and, and that will be a move for the likes of Manchester City to look at this summer. Um, Manchester United are going to have to look at a number of players this summer as well because they're aiming for a return to the Champions League final. It's now 10 years since that has happened to them. In fact, they just want to be in the Champions League once again. For the first time in their history, the club has appointed someone to the role of football director. In fact, there's a big reshuffle at Old Trafford. Let me explain it. John Murta joined in 2013. He takes responsibility for the overall leadership across all of the football functions. He reports into the executive vice chairman, Ed Woodward. He'll work closely with the manager. Matt Judge is there. He's got a new title of director of football negotiations. He's been responsible for transfers and contract negotiations since 2016. And their former midfielder, Darren Fletcher, becomes technical director, the club's first as well. He'll be offering expertise on both recruitment and squad building. Johnny, what difference do these roles make, really? Let's be honest. To me, it's just some words on an office door um, to a club structure and really a club output. Yeah, I, look, I shared a bit of that scepticism here. I have, I have to say it does look a little bit like just the internal promotions and so on. Um, but the, I think the detail that might just make this meaningful is there is a streamlining that's gone on and it is a fact that... Um, John Murta is now going to be the sort of point of contact for everything and report through to, to Ed Woodward, which is, you know, transfers, um, big decisions with the academy, uh, all, all the stuff on the football side, it will go through John and then to, to Ed. And one of the biggest problems I've heard about United with, with agents and talking about players when you try and do a deal with United is it's, it's meetings about meetings about meetings and never getting close to... The, the sort of decision-making process, the centre of power, which is basically Ed and the Glazers. So there's maybe a streamlining going on here. It, I mean, in the, look, to give it the positive spin, it, John's version, you know, he's not, he's not the kind of Michael Zork, um, Monchi type of director of football. Of course not. He's more of an administrative guy, an organiser. But you look at Leicester, who've had some of the best recruitment in Europe in the last 10, 15 years. John Rodkin's kind of like that. John Rodkin is is a low-key um, sort of administrative guy who's, who came from the academy, whose strength is is doing a really good, solid uh, job of managing in between the, the playing side and the executive. So maybe that's what John Mert is going to do. I think Darren Fletcher's input will be um, absolutely vital to making that system work because somebody has to bring the pizzazz, the, fo- the, the football strategy and vision, which Ollie's going to do clearly. You know, he's in charge of driving the identity, which will make you really happy, Hugh. Um, but I think, I think the fact that, you know, they... Oh, come on. <laughs> let's, not, let's not go down that rabbit hole. No, I mean, I, I, I did... I, I, yeah, yeah, second, second in the league just beats it. It's, it's all terrible again. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, 
Um, well, yeah, I, I mean, I think Darren Fletcher will will be that or should be that presence where, you know, when you're trying to sign a young player, it's Darren Fletcher who, who goes to, to meet to meet them and, and do the sell. It's not um, it's not Matt Judge or uh, another of Ed's executive team. The, bo- the bottom line is they shied away from the big external appointment. And that's because that sort of two reasons, the identity thing they think they're going to get from the manager in that old-fashioned way. And the Glazers and Ed, I, I, I guess, as we've known all along, don't really want somebody that's really powerful and charismatic trying to drive transfers. They, they, want, to con- they want to hold tight to that. So I, I, get, I guess it's <laughs> one of those where you've got, you've got to see how it works out. I, I do think there's a glimmer of hope for United in terms of getting things better, that there's a bit more streamlining and Dan Fletcher is now involved in the process. It's, so it's a, a marginal improvement, I think, you. Gregor, in your, in your football experience, how big of an impact does a good director of football have on a club? I think really the, the titles are fairly irrelevant. It's just about leadership. And, you know, that, that's been a criticism of Manchester United for, for a number of years now. So, you know, it, although this, I'm not, there's been discussions about Manchester United should go out and, you know, Gary Neville said for so long, they need to go out and get the best in class in, in all these positions. That's something he's repeated and repeated. And, you know, there, there is something, something to be said for that. But if there's people within the club that they've seen work for a number of years and believe they're very competent and intelligent. And look, I think we all, all agree that Darren Fletcher is someone who, in whatever avenue he, want, he chose to go down, post-football, post his playing days, I'm sure he'd be a success and he's a very intelligent guy. Um, so he'd be a big acquisition for them. Uh, but I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with a point from within. And, you know, as, as Johnny alluded to, there's people who are holding senior executive positions at a number of Premier League clubs who you know very little about and you've never really heard, heard of or heard from a lot of people. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just that the proof will be in the pudding. And... You know, it's not worked very well for Manchester United for for a number of years, really, since Ferg- since uh, Sir Alex Ferguson left, and I think they're still kind of navigating a way to to, stru- to structure this club in a modern way that can have that can function properly. Tom, but this is a move that for me makes Manchester United quite static. Um, yeah, I think I, I'm open to saying that this might pull the wool over lots of fans' eyes who've been calling for a director of football for some time. Some even claiming that Ed Woodward is shifting the responsibility for the moves going forward onto onto other names at the club. Um, Murto and Judge have, have overpaid for a lot of players. They've overpaid greatly, in my opinion, for a lot of the contracts at Manchester United. They've only spent £70 million less than Manchester City over the past five years. Um you know, there have been sagas over the players that they have and haven't signed. Um, I, I, I don't know why, but do you think fans will delight in these changes? I can understand your scepticism and you make some valid points about the previous deals. What I would say, and this doesn't help me out with my prediction that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will be gone anytime soon, is that reading Paul Hurst's detail and profiles of these kind of moves, people like Murta who by all accounts, has a big interest in young players, was big in pushing the kind of performance plan program that was about improving the academy and things. It That seems to chime with what we've seen and heard from Solskjaer and what they're trying to do at the club. And wherever you go in football at any level, I've spoken to 
kind of people in charge of football clubs at in you know lower down the league and some of them have described the relationship between manager and director of football as being important there's no point having a great director of football with it, who's a huge name who's done loads of things if they don't work in well in tandem with the manager you know so a chief executive once described that, that his club as the the director of football is like the creative midfielder who does all the hard work in midfield um, beats the defenders and then lays on the chance and then the manager comes in and finishes it off. So that that to me seems to be a positive actually because everything I've read about Murta and Fletcher seems to suggest that they will work well in tandem with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. So I don't think it's this big seismic change um, at the top, but perhaps it's um, a bridging step, if you like, to take Manchester United a little bit more into modern football thinking and maybe in five years' time, Hugh, you'll have your superstar manager and your superstar director of football working in tandem to bring in the best talent around Europe and take you to that Champions League final again. I went to the Man United tweet, thousands of quote tweets and responses, and I was just reading through them. So many people saying, great, finally, the club's moving in the right direction. I was like, two of the three most powerful people on that announcement already worked at the club. So the idea that sort of they're going to bring in transformational change is... is well, it's not true, is it? I agree with that completely, but I, I think there was never going to be, they were never going to hire Monchi or someone from a big, a big club from somewhere else and say, right, change everything. Not with, not particularly not with Solskjaer in, in, in the current manager position. They were never, ever going to do that. That would launch play pressure on as well. You know, a big yeah. guy comes in, you think immediately you want to see can, some kind of clear progress in terms of the recruitment strategy. But I just think these two guys, I know like, especially Murta, people say, you know, he's done good things and he's been responsible for bringing in loads of good young players. But um, you look at some of the signings and it's like, how can anyone celebrate the people that brought you Fred for £50 million, even Fred's Pogba player, for £89 million, Harry Maguire for £80 million, a right back from Crystal Palace for £45 million up front, oh, spending on. over half a million pounds a week on three goalkeepers. I mean... The, the people that brought you Jesse Lingard's new contract and Phil Jones's four-year extension. You know, like, how on earth can you be delighted that these guys have been left with the purse strings on transfers? I've got no idea. You know, absolutely no idea. Particularly Matt Judge, who was an investment banker for 13 years before he started at Man United. Do me a favour. I mean, I've never seen so much money wasted at a football club. To think we spent £70 million less than... Um, Manchester City which is essentially Ruben Diaz you know to have not even a half you know Dan James starting massive games come on Man United fans irrational rational hatred for Dan James my, one of my good mates is with Man United he absolutely hates Dan James I don't, I don't hate Dan James but my point is if you spend 500 million quid in five years you shouldn't need your 15 million pound signing from Swansea to start against the leaders you know do you know pace, what I mean mate. fits the tactics pace he was a bargain he could be He's a, good not a bargain. Million quid. He was for the position you were in that that stage. That was good and like he's, he played a lot of football. He'll be worth twice that now. Really? Of course he would. Thirty million pounds for Dan James. Who's paying that? Someone stupid. Leeds. <laughs> Leeds. Yeah, he might fit into their system. Yeah, he, yeah. Especially if Rafinha leaves. But I agree with you that there's there's lots to not be that excited about here, particularly when you look at the people involved and their track records. But I think with Manchester United, we've seen with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, a lot of the work that he's doing is almost undoing some of the mistakes of the recent past. And so 
you were never going to bring in a big superstar director of football. It was always just going to have to first accept that you need to change the hierarchy and the setup. And that's what this is doing. You know, I've been the first to criticise the modern Manchester United, and I think it's easy to do so. But this is at least a step in the right direction. And it's it's going to be a long road for Manchester United to get into a position of where they're like Liverpool with Michael Edwards and Jurgen Klopp. They're a long, long way off that. But this is at least a step in the right direction. The thing to say about sporting directors is that transfers are always the, the, the focal point and they are the most sexy and important thing that they do. But, I mean, you've got to remember it's it's a broad role. A sporting director has to look after, you know, ev- everything in the football department, whether it's a new analytics appointment or or some a change in the sports science, the academy, um, yeah, the, 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 there's a there's a huge range of stuff, and I'd have confidence that John Murtagh could could do that. The other big thing they have to look after is the identity side of things, which Solskjaer's going to do. Um, this a, there's a lot of sense in all of this, as I say, it works in other clubs, but it will be transfers that they're they're judged on. And I actually wonder whether our whole debate about sporting director and Manchester United's transfers it it, it comes down to. Um, it comes down to Edward Wood and the Glazers and, and making the money available and getting the deals done properly because I don't think that's changed. The deals will still go to Ed's desk and it will be Joel Glazer that gives him the okay. And, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer brought Manchester United Erling Haaland and they didn't do the deal. You know, they had they had Sancho teed up and didn't do the deal. So it might this might be something the sporting director is not going to affect. Yeah, look, there's a big decision for these guys to make who they compete for in the transfer market this summer will be a massive one for Manchester United because I, I, I predict if Erling Braut Haaland ends up at Manchester City, Man United aren't finishing above their city rivals for at least the next five years, if not longer. So uh, a lot of work for them to do in the transfer market. We will see where they and Darren Fletcher, who I know the fans love, can take the club from here on out. Uh, You're listening to the Game Football Podcast. Remember, you can give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And of course, make sure you subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times right now. You can get it on all of your devices. And if you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.com code.uk forward slash the game to get started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Well, this week, Daniel Levy celebrated 20 years as the chairman of Tottenham Hotspur. A £22 million acquisition in 2001 is now valued at around £2 billion. A new training centre and a new stadium are maybe the icing on the cake as well. But the 2008 League Cup is the only trophy of his tenure. 
Uh, Jonathan, tell us about Levy's reputation in football. How's it grown over the past two decades? I say it's transformed, actually. I, I, mean, I remember Daniel Levy when he came to Rangers, when he started in football. Uh, and at that point, he was head of Enoch, you know, which was the, the, the investment fund that Joe Lewis um close family friend, benefactor, had set up and he was a young guy trying to get into football. Uh, he had this idea of creating a network of European clubs, which actually you can see people at Red Bull have gone ahead and done. So he was probably ahead of the game in his thinking, but he got it. He seemed very naive at the time. He got things wrong with Rangers. He bought 25% of the club, but didn't actually get himself any decision-making power. And you know, would sit there at board meetings and make suggestions about the future and, and, and the chairman, David Murray, and his cohort would just kind of laugh him off. So I think he's gone from, you know, a kind of idealistic, naive kind of businessman to somebody who's a reference point, love him or hate him, for um, how to run, grow a football club, how to think big, um, how to build something. The, 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 the stadium is a crown and glory for him. Um, the trophies haven't been there, that's true, but Tottenham have in his tenure become you know, one of the big six, one of the top clubs with one of the best stadiums in the world. And I guess he's he's added value all over the place. So I guess from a business point of view, he's had a great evolution. It's what his football legacy is, I guess fans will, will keep debating until that, that, that real big trophy arrives. Yeah, that football legacy is, is interesting, Gregor. They've had six top four finishes in those 20 years. They've had nine permanent managers. Uh, often Levy is spoken about as a character that refuses to spend money. How much credit do you think he deserves for taking things slowly as he builds at Spurs? Yeah, I think there have been several different stages. You remember when Spurs were always signing the best young English talent around and and they, they, they all seem to be, you know, brilliant deals like Gareth Bale and whatnot. Um, and then there's the kind of era of building the, the state-of-the-art training centre and the stadium and, you know, the purse strings are tightened a little bit there. And he's certainly someone who has vision and is a leader. And I think he, you know, from watching the Amazon documentary, I think he, he came across pretty well, actually. Fairly kind of solid, dependable, straight down the line kind of guy. Um, it's something you don't hear from at all, and it was, it was an interesting insight. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of... There's, there's, there's a lot of nuance in this, I think, because although Spurs have grown so much and developed and the, the infrastructure and the way they're perceived has, has been transformed in the last 20 years, so is the Premier League. The, the, money and the, the money that's come into the Premier League and the growth of the Premier League has made that possible as well so yes he's he's been uh, a very clever kind of operator in the transfer market and in the growth of the infrastructure of the club but that went in tandem with the just ridiculous growth in revenues in the Premier League so and then then you come back to the football I think I was reading that the they, they hadn't been in the top six in the decade before he arrived and in the last 20 years they've been in the top six 13 times so you know the Premier League is a league where there are, you know, now we're, there's oligarchs and nation states uh, financing football clubs. It's not easy to win silverware in the Premier League, but Spurs are now regarded as one of the big clubs in Europe. If you, that wasn't the case before Daniel Levy arrived. I don't know. It's 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 a difficult one. I think ultimately football is about 
ambition and success, and that is what that's what Spurs fans will always come back to. There's not been enough silverware for all that, all that growth and development. Has that been kind of taken the place a little bit of uh, ambition? And there's probably some truth in that. But now Spurs are in a, a once the pandemic kind of passes and we're allowed fans back inside stadiums the revenues they'll be able to create will set them in in in, uh, in great st- great stead for the future and and i'm sure there'll be a club that are able to challenge in the coming years now in the build-up to this podcast i was told not to ask this question so obviously i'm doing it tom clark has the power shifted in north london <laughs> and who was it who told you not to ask that question as well, well it's you obviously you know um <laughs> has the power shifted if you're a player and you've got the option now of, of moving to Jose Mourinho Spurs, Arsenal with Mikel Arteta, the visions for those two clubs over the next five years, next 10 years, which club would you go to? I think fo- footballing wise, it comes down to the two managers. So perhaps I would pick Arsenal. But I think in terms of the setup of the clubs, Tottenham are in an incredibly strong position. So yeah, I'm going to sit completely on the fence here and say they're both good options. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, but I think Tottenham are a hugely attractive club, not least because of the new stadium, which is, I've never been, but by all accounts, one of the most impressive modern football yeah, arenas yeah. in Europe. Um, I, it's interesting hearing the guys talk about Levy and mention words like business. And obviously it, a lot of the narrative around Daniel Levy comes down to his transfer dealings, which is interesting given what we've just said about Manchester United and things. But I asked, I've got a few of my colleagues on the sports desk who I consider to be knowledgeable football fans and they happen to be Tottenham fans as well. So I asked them if they could say one word about Daniel Levy's time. And I was expecting them to be far more critical than they were because to me as a fan on the outside, it seems to be that the narrative is around missed opportunities and failing to back managers at certain points, be it Harry Redknapp or Mauricio Pochettino. But they use words like relevant. He's made us relevant again. Look where we were before he came in. Uh, visionary, um, not in the ways that most fans appreciate, but definitely took Tottenham into the modern modern world of football. Uh, and evolution was the other one. Love or hate his transfer policy. He's definitely improved our position uh, and status as a club in Europe. So I think in relation to your question, when you consider that that's how they're viewed and under Levy, I think as a player, you would you would probably have a good cause to pick Tottenham. As where I said, they've, you've brought through a lot of young players as well in recent years. They're a hugely attractive club. It's just, they have fallen short when it comes to winning those trophies and in those big moments. But I mean, can you can we can we actually blame Daniel Levy for that? Is that's he's he's set them up he's he's got good transfer deals he's got them the great stadium he's got them to this position can does he take full responsibility if that's then not translated into trophies on the pitch i I think he's pretty much done the perfect job i mean if if you look at the 20-year body of work he could hardly have done much better to put tottenham in the position that they're in and i know there were a couple of transfer windows where he didn't spend any money and of course football fans will say You've got to spend, you know, you've got to spend, you've got to, you've got to do that to be able to keep up with those around you. But I think you've got to understand that Tottenham were behind all the other big clubs in most of the other areas of infrastructure, training ground, stadium, etc. They are now ahead in those two elements. The next bit is the squad. They've already got a manager that matches up with the other big clubs. So they are now not that far away from 
and, and not just getting to the top table of European football, which I think now they're, they're pretty much on. Obviously, you know, they need to consistently be a, a Champions League side every single year, which I still don't think they, they necessarily are. But of course, we know the league's very, very competitive. But they've got every single ingredient to make sure that that could happen. And before, they, 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 they simply didn't, you know. And, and I think Spurs fans will be pretty, pretty happy with how things have gone. And maybe this period of time I think in particular the stadium will have changed their mind because when you walk in there you think wow you do think wow I mean there's a huge wow factor when you walk into that stadium and I think that's that's really his his crowning achievement so far um Johnny Glenn Hoddle Jack Santini Martin Yol Wande Ramos Harry Redknapp Andre Villas-Boas Tim Sherwood Mauricio Pochettino and now Jose Mourinho who's your favourite? Oh, look, I love Martin Yol. I used to ghostwrite Martin's column, and 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 uh, I think he was he was really on the. If you remember Lasagna Gate, very unlucky not to take them into the Champions League. Um, the net. The, the, when I think about the kind of maybe the mishaps of the Levy era, let's say Santini's the one that always comes to mind. Uh, the one of the worst games I've ever seen in my life. I can still picture it was at Goodison Park, early in his reign. I don't even know what it was. He was playing, you know, the, 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 the sort of George Burley Scotland, sorry, Craig Levine Scotland 6-3-0 or something like that. It was so negative, so turgid to see Tottenham try to play like that was incredible. And, and he had no charisma whatsoever. So that's probably the, the low point. But there's been some good managers there. You know, we're talking about how Levy's he's had a go. He's tried. Um, he's, he's, he's almost tried every permutation, you know, Harry representing the, the kind of, that's one for the fans, that's one for the, the media probably, you know, safe pair of hands. V.S. Boas, supposedly the coming man. I think Santini was yet another attempt to mimic Arsene Wenger and, 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 and what he was doing at um, Arsenal. And, and, you know, po- getting Pochettino at the time that he did and, and building something, keeping him for five years. The imagination to go for Mourinho, which... It's a big play and that might still, you know, Jose's got the power to tear the whole house down, but it's a, it, it, that shows ambition. You know, that's, that's a big play. So you can see with this, you can see a guy trying things and thinking big with some of those managerial appointments too. Big game coming up for them at the weekend. We'll discuss on the game podcast on Monday as well. The North London derby, 7th versus 10th. Spurs seven points ahead of Arsenal. We'll reflect on that uh, on the next episode of the game podcast. But there's been a shift in status, I think, in North London. Barnsley in the championship shifting their own status right now. Seven wins and one draw in their last eight games. Who knows? They could end up in the Premier League next season back in the Premier League after a long, long time away. Um, Gregor, tell us a little bit about their playoff charge under their boss Valerian Ishmael, the former Palace and Bayern defender. The secret of their success is something called vertical football. Not, not everyone's impressed by it. No, I mean they are they are ruffling a lot of feathers. Uh, Wayne Rooney was the was the latest uh, opposition head coach to to uh, to voice his displeasure. Basically, at the in fairness, he gave them credit too. He said that um, they're very good at what they do. Essentially, uh, Barnsley play the most direct football in the championship. They play the most long balls the most fin- balls in th- the most balls into the final third of any team but they couple that with with the most intense press in probably in the country there are some metrics um optometrics in which they rank above any premier league team as well um so you know it's something this is something slightly different to what you would see from some championship teams or some of them perhaps like the old old school managers who still play pretty direct football uh, in that 
Valen Ishmael calls it direct with a purpose and it means once they play forward they have targeted press and that's when they're at their most dangerous winning the ball back uh, from the opposition in the final third and no one knows how to cope with it this is the thing everyone now is this is what's been so fascinating in the last the last month and a bit seven straight wins and teams like I referenced in, the, in, in my piece uh, Blackburn Rovers managed by Tony Mowbray who are renowned as one of the most kind of expansive possession dominant teams in the championship uh, matched them up they went three at the back two up front and booted it because they know <laughs> they know that if you try and play out from the back you will lose against Barnsley they are that effective so it's quite uh, Gary Rowett another um, uh, another manager who's who was beaten by by them who, who's the, the Millwall manager he even referenced um, a team he was part of uh, a Cambridge United team in the early 90s managed by John Beck who were notorious for for playing direct football um, but he was he was complimentary as you would imagine because he was a part of that um, said good luck to them um, but that they, this is different this is different I mean uh, <laughs> John Beck's team grew the grass in the corners of the pitches so they could boom it into the corner and it wouldn't go out of play uh, you know they, they did all the tricks of the trade about turning up the, the heat in the way dressing room and stuff Barnsley aren't doing any of this and it's getting to the point now where Ishmael yesterday kind of said look it's important after Rooney's comments Rooney said they are the most direct team I've ever seen in my life and he said afterwards, look, it's important that managers and players aren't disrespectful here. You're not, you're coming and you're changing the way you play because of the way we play. And that's because of how good we are at pressing. So, you know, show a bit of respect. You're changing the way you play. If you, you know, if you're so good at, at whatever, however you play your philosophy, stick to it and see if you can beat us that way. You're not doing that because it's not working. So it's been really fascinating to see the reaction to this in the championship in the last month and a bit, as I say. And no one has been able to stop them. And the Barnes have been propelled into, into the playoffs. They have one of the smallest budgets in the, the division. Um, and it's all because of a unity of vision from the top to the bottom of the club. They they were taken over in, in 2017 by a consortium that includes Billy Bean, who of, of Moneyball uh, fame. Um, and I remember visiting the club, uh, visiting Oakwell just after that period. And because I, I, from the top, the chief executive at the time said, we're recruiting managers because of the style of football. So they recruited Daniel Stendhal, first of all, who was another manager who loved to play high-pressing football. And I, th I thought that was slightly peculiar in the championship to hear, you know, the board saying, we're recruiting this guy because of his commitment to gegenpressing. And they've now recruited three managers. And in fact, some of them have worked together in, in teams in Germany, all because they play that way. And so there is a uni united vision from the top to the bottom of the club. The academy are playing that way. They're very intelligent with the recruitment. Um, and, you know, they've got a chance of, of gate crashing the playoffs. Tom, I didn't think the EFL would be the home of football snobbery. Uh, why do you think people are so disparaging? Well, I think firstly, because it's an acknowledgement that in the championship, there's a lot of attractive teams that play the inverted commas right way. Lots of teams try and play out from the back, not even in the championship, all the way through the football league. So there's, that, there's always going to be that element of uh, snobbery, if you like. And it's attached as well as to Barnsley, also to teams like Cardiff under Mick McCarthy, um, who are having a similarly impressive season. 
playing a different way, completely different way, but uh, and under the could be bracketed under the lazy term of anti-football for the people who like to choose that term. But I think what's interesting about Barnsley is, as Gregor stressed, and when you reference some of those people like John Beck and things, those teams were perhaps more focused on killing off the opposition or killing off the game. Barnsley aren't doing that. They're simply trying to give themselves the chance to play to their strength, and which is in fact a positive. So it's interesting. I think, you know, Greg has mentioned a lot of the quotes as well, but Jan Valery, who plays for Birmingham, you know, he said, they just play long balls. They don't do anything else, which is completely not, it's not true. They they want the ball down that end of the pitch, but it's it's with a purpose. It's in order to um, play to their strengths. I found it really interesting in Gregor's piece as well, talking about the players and the fact that they make the most substitutions. Uh, I think 135, they've made more subs than any other team. Um, And Connor Chaplin, one of the strikers, says, we're fit lads, we can run all day. And when you're tired, you keep going. But then someone else is brought on and they keep going as well. So it's almost like this, they are this unit and it's just change them in, bring them on. It's, It's fascinating to watch. You know, I've said before on this podcast that I'm a bit of a football tactics geek. I love anything like this. Um, and but at the same time, whilst say someone like Mick McCarthy's Cardiff, who I watched against Huddersfield recently, th- that can be a little bit tiring. Barnsley are not tiring to watch; they're not a drag at all. It's f- absolutely fascinating and frenetic at times. Yeah, they've they've made just to follow up on that. They've made five substitutes. Uh, I, I, if they did last night, that would be in the last eight games, and they changed their whole front three sometimes at half time because. The players are relentless in going after the the opposition, and they've now they've now you know they made some good signings in January, so they now have the the squad depth to do that. And you know I, I should say this is a you know Barnsley. I think they were last promoted to the Premier League in 1997 under Danny Wilson, and you know they've, <laughs> it's a great old ground. You go and they've got the kind of the the fanzine there is called West End Bogs, because if you go if you go to to Barnsley's main stand, like in a winter's night, the ba- the back wall, which is painted this kind of deep blood red, you, it doubles as a urinal, and you can see the steam rising <laughs> half time from the from this year. It's an old, you know, that there's parts of it. Barnsley still looked at as an an old fashioned club, but they are every bit the modern modern day club of you know their use of analytics. They 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 rarely sign a player over the age of twenty four, and they develop them and. Some players are 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 have improved no end in the last year at eighteen months. Um, a player called Callum Styles, who they signed from uh, from from Bury in twenty eighteen, uh, he's he's made a breakthrough this season and he's an outstanding player. You know, there's players who who are ready to play in the Premier League soon. I think so. It's you know, as I say, it's just we're talking. We talk about so often about clubs having a plan, and much like they're. In the kind of same vein as Brentford, they know they've got not got the same resources. Uh, they have to box clever, and they make good use of analytics and data. They look for value where other teams don't, and that that counts in terms of managers as well. And they have a vision, and they and it's it's kind of reaping its rewards now. I think. Just to follow up on Gregor's point about the vision as well is, don't be surprised by some of these players in this Barnsley team going on to bigger teams for a decent amount of money this summer I don't think you know the def- the defenders Gregor in his piece talks about uh, Mads Anderson who was a bit 
bit of a calamity case when he first came to the club a few uh, few years ago. And as Gregor quotes, there's a brilliant um, quote from the West Stand Boggs fanzine who said, whatever we've done to Mads Anderson is a bigger scientific achievement than our AstraZeneca have ever achieved. So there you go. That says everything you need to know. <laughs> but they've also got a guy called Michael Hellick, who I've watched a couple of times this season, who I think he looks like a really classy defender. Uh, he's only 25, just been called up by Poland. So I think it's easy to to get bogged down, if you like, and focused on all these comments by people from Wayne Rooney to Jan Valerie to Gary Rowett. But there's there's a lot more going on here than just pressing and booting it down the other end of the pitch. And how many times have we said variety is good? Variety is a good thing. This is some, yeah, this is a team. This is a team doing something different, and it's clearly ruffling feathers. You know, other teams can't cope with it. And it's that, that Valerie said in when I spoke to him, you know, it's up to other teams to find a solution. And, you know, there is there is a bit of snobbery about this, and it's but it's different. It's not the same as the kind of old-fashioned lump it, head it and lump head it and boot it football. It's not the same. They do it with a plan and a purpose. Well, styles make fights, as they say. And listen, what a sliding doors moment that final game of the season could be for Barnsley because they stayed up by beating Brentford, you'll remember, who missed out on a place in the Premier League. Barnsley could well be joining them, who knows, next year if both go up. Um, we'll see exactly what happens with the end of the championship season and I'm sure it will be fantastic. Um, listen, just to end the podcast, I wanted to play a quick quiz with you guys. Lionel Messi missing this week his 28th penalty. He's now missed more penalties than any player in the 21st century. His career miss percentage is around 21%, which is actually quite high. But I wanted to ask you, who has missed more penalties in their career? career. Gregor, I'll start with you. Um, David Villa or Luca Tony? Who's got a bigger miss percentage? Luca Tony. Luca Tony is correct. 32.1%. David Villa missed 16.1% of his penalties. Uh, Tom, Rude Van Nistelrooy or Sergio Aguero? Who missed a bigger percentage of their penalties? Aguero, surely. No, it's Rude Van Nistelrooy. What? at 20. Rude Van Nistelrooy missed 20.8% of the penalties he took as a professional footballer. Sergio Jeez. Aguero, 19.7%. Wow. Uh, Johnny, Frank Lampard or Ronaldinho? Wow, it's got to be Ronaldinho, surely. Absolutely, Ronaldinho, 19.1% <laughs> of his penalties were missed compared to 16.3% of Frank Lampard's, which he had a great record. Uh, he only missed 13 out of 80 penalties that he took. Quite a high number of penalties he took. Uh, what about this one for the finish, though? I'll, I'll put it out to all of you. Antonio Cassano or Andrea Pirlo? Tom, what do you think? <laughs> Cassano. Pirlo chipped every single one straight down the middle and scored every single one. <laughs> Johnny? No, Pirlo, surely. Cassano's that kind of idiot that, that scores penalties, if you know what I mean. Gregor? Pirlo. Pirlo. <laughs> the higher miss percentage is Antonio Cassano. Absolutely ridiculous. He missed 40% of the penalties he ever took. Andrea Pirlo is still, though, surprisingly high. 29 
68.4% of his penalties. He missed 10 out of 34 as a player. So yeah, very, very high. Messi's 21%, as I say, pretty low, but he's also taken about 160 penalties. So he hasn't actually missed that many, but there you go. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you for being with me for the uh, game podcast. Uh, Remember listening at home to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times right now on all of your devices. Uh, Make sure you're subscribed. You will get yourself one month free today. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. We will see you on Monday. 